With 2022 bringing us raging inflation, slowing economic growth, shaky financial markets, and now war, if there ever was a time to hear the experienced counsel of Mark Faber, the original Dr. Doom, it's now. The financial system nowadays is very fragile. And if people are no longer so confident, it, it has an impact on valuations. You know, this is the point. I think uh, Jeremy Grantham will prove to be correct that over the next 10 years, <clears throat> if you don't lose any money, you are actually doing quite well. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Adam Taggart, founder of Wealthion, welcoming you back for another week of making sense of money and the markets so that you can make better informed decisions about building your wealth. So far, 2022 has brought hot inflation, slowing economic growth, shaky financial markets, and now war. And we're only two months into the year so far. Will things start getting better or are even worse times ahead? I can't think of a more relevant time to hear the counsel of Dr. Mark Faber, PhD in economics, author, and a longtime editor and publisher of the Gloom Boom Doom Report. Mark, thank you so much for staying up late to talk with us all the way from Thailand. <laughs> it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on your program. Well, thank you, Mark. As I mentioned, as we were getting on camera here, you have the distinction of having the most watched interview on Wealthion so far when you came on several months ago. I'm hoping we can break that record uh, today with this. But, <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> well, we'll see. But look, there is so much going on in the world right now. And I'm so grateful that you were able to make some time to come talk with us because the type of events that are going on in the world right now are exactly the type of events that you have been covering, predicting, et cetera, for the past you know, 30 plus years through your gloom, doom, boom report. Um, I've got a ton of questions I wanna go through, but, but if I can, let me just start at a very high level with the questions that I ask all of my interviewees at the beginning. What is your current assessment of the global economy and financial markets right now? Well, thank you for asking me a very easy question to respond to. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you understand, we live in a world where there's so many things happening and all these things have an influence on markets. Uh, but the principal driver of, say, financial markets, of stocks and bonds, has been uh, monetary policy in the Western world. And uh, that has made any precise assessment of the strengths of an economy very difficult. Because let's assume you tell me, Mark, how are you? And how is your business? I'll tell you, everything is great. But I don't tell you that everything is great because I just got the loan of, say, $100 million, which I know I will never be able to pay back, but I can spend it. And so by spending it, uh, I live a very great life. And maybe one day a bank will have to write it off or something like this. But the money that I got free of charge from whatever, the government or the state or 
the bank allows me to live way above my standard of living doesn't mean that it's sustainable. That is the point. And when you ask me about the global economy, I think we are in a surreal economy in the sense that the typical household, according to statistics, at 35 years of age is less wealthy than the parents were when they were 35 and they earn less in real terms, inflation adjusted than they were 35. Number two point I'd like to make is we have today a rate of inflation and we have to define what this inflation is when stocks go up, when properties go up, is this inflation or is it a bull market? You know, there are many interpretations, but basically inflation is a excessive printing of money, an increase in the quantity of money, so something will go up. So it can be that, say, commodities go up, and it can be that stocks go up, it could be that bonds go up, it could be that uh, houses go up, and cost of living, and so forth, and so on. But say, for most ordinary people, inflation is an increase in the cost of living. Now, the cost of living at the present time, and you have a household and you have maybe children, and I have also children, but my daughter is already grown up. So your rate of inflation is a different one than mine. But say, if I look at all the literature about inflation at the present time, uh, it has to be in the United States between seven and 12% per annum depending on the household and where you live and so forth. But in some areas, uh, you know, rents have gone up by 20% over the last 12 months and in other areas less. And then if you own a house, maybe you don't feel it that much and so forth. So it's difficult to calculate, but I think a fair assessment would be to say some, as between seven and 12%. Now, the last time inflation was this high was in the 70s. But at that time, the Fed fund rate was around 8%. And now we have central banks in Europe that think inflation is transitory. So, you know, they don't need to do anything. And in the US, the big debate, there's a big debate is whether to increase interest rates from zero to 0 0.25 or 0.50. You understand? This is a surreal world. Interest rates, when the rate of inflation is this high, should be, say, on the Fed fund rate, 6 to 8% minimum. But we are there at uh, not even, but they haven't increased it yet and they're still buying assets. You have to see this, they're buying assets. They're not, they haven't stopped printing money, not at all. And so I don't know what the outcome will be, but I, I, don't, I can't imagine that it will be a favorable outcome in the long run. And in the meantime, I'd like to just say one thing to everyone. You know, when I grew up in the 60s and 50s, 
My grandparents always said, you know, you have to save some money and you put it in the bank and then you have some reserves. Today, money in the bank and reserves is about the worst thing you can have because in a year's time, through this inflation I explained, it will be worse 7 to 8%, maybe 12% less than it is today. And so <coughs> people go and buy all kinds of things. And as you know, the young people, they bought Bitcoins. And a lot of them were bought at higher prices than they are today and other cryptocurrencies. And then they bought uh, meme stocks. The meme stocks, they peaked out end of January 2021. And on average, they're down close to 80%. Okay? Down 80%. The SPACs that were promoted by Wall Street, <laughs> all kinds of businessmen, they're also down like 80% and probably will go lower and so forth and so on. So a lot of money has already been lost. Uh, the ARK ETF, which is kind of an innovation technology ETF, peaked out in January. 2021 is down more than 50%. And I'm not blaming the manager. The manager, she's very intelligent woman and so forth. But a lot of things have been in bear markets. A lot of money has been lost already. And the Fed is in a, the Federal Reserve. In other words, the printing institution. They're in a very difficult situation because if they don't print, okay, if they stop printing at all, the markets will go down, period, because there's no money coming into the system to boost the asset prices. And maybe also inflation will go down. But who knows? That we don't know precisely. But if the asset prices go down, and everybody says this is the biggest bubble in the world and so forth. Yeah, there's a big, big bubble, but certain things are not in a bubble. But say if things go down, then the impact on people's wealth will be felt. It's like the Russian oligarchs. They will spend now less on pleasure boats. That I can assure you. All right, Mark. Well, look. Um... Phenomenal first answer, and I've got a lot of questions here, but I want to kind of jump to the end based upon what you said. But let, let me just quickly kind of recap. Um, I heard you say that, look, we're sort of living in an era of diminishing prospects, right? This generation has less prosperity than the one before it, um, and that is continuing to get weighed down by elements like the high inflation we have right now, right? So there's this increasing inflation tax that um, is putting us in the situation where the authorities are just running around, you know, making a lot of noise about taking action that's really completely insufficient for the problem at hand, right? You just talked about, are we going to hike a quarter point or, or 50 basis points? And it's just so small compared to what we need to, to tame the type of inflation monster yes, that's raging right now. Yes, precisely. That is the answer. It's irrelevant at this point uh, to solve the problem. Right. And so the, the problem that, 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 that society then faces is we have these people who, you know, 
are impaired in building capital, right? Because as you said, savings, cash in the bank, uh, gets no no nominal return and has a deeply negative real return annually, right? So people are forced to become speculators and they get pushed out the risk curve and, and younger generations are buying cryptos and meme coins, et cetera. And you said, you know, when those bubbles burst, well, then they have the wealth destruction of losing that money too. So they're having trouble saving money and then they, they get injured when the money that they do save they invest in, and they in the, if they invest in something speculative and it gets destroyed, it's sort of a double whammy for them. So that's you know, there's no real social good coming out of that trajectory. Where does all this end? Do you think? You said it. There is zero social good coming out of it. In fact, it is a rip off of ordinary people. And I want to explain you why I'm saying this. If you look at the history of bubbles going back, say, three, four hundred years, and the plenty of bubbles, who at the end makes money? The small speculators are always wiped out, wiped out. And who makes money? The big boys, the big speculators, connected people people who are protected by the SEC, Securities and Exchange Commission. Of course, when they formed the SEC, they said that is the, for the protection of the small person, the small guy. But in fact, it's the protection of the big guys. Unless the big guy like Elon Musk attacks the government, then they go after him. But we can continue to dream on in the world of saying everybody is equal and <laughs> the government is here to help you and me. <laughs> what a joke. So it sounds, uh, like a joke. sounds like you're saying this has happened. This has been the cycle of history. You know, do you expect it to be the same this Throughout time around? History. Yeah, are, 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 we, are we largely in danger of having the same thing happen where the next time this wheel turns and there's real destruction, it's still the big protected classes that come out okay and it's all the little guys that get wiped out? Uh, there are always war profiteers and so forth. But I can, I can tell you, uh, let's say we look at the revolution like the French Revolution. At the end of the French Revolution, everybody lost. You know, this there wasn't a clear winner. And at the end of the Bolshevik revolution, uh, the people that supported the revolution, initially the farmers as well, uh, they were slaughtered. <laughs> they lost the land and they lost the, their existence and everything. So it's a tough thing to judge on which side you want to stay. War, and class warfare is very bad for everyone. And it should be avoided. But I tell you personally, I'm an asset holder. Because the central banks printed so much money, I have essentially become wealthier than I ever dreamt when I went to school. You understand? But as an economist and a social observer, I think it's a disaster. It's a horrible situation. It's a horrible situation. And I 
really feel bad about so many people because they don't see through the devastating impact of money printing. And we had it for the last 30 years or so. And it started essentially in the late 1980s and then it went on and then they printed money and deliberately created the housing bubble in 2002, 2007. But they knew that it's that they're creating a housing bubble by keeping interest rates artificially low and encouraging, you know, like uh, subprime loans. But after the bubble burst, I went to Atlanta and then a friend of mine, he was starting an investment company and he bought like homes that had been foreclosed upon. For me, it was a depressing uh, sight because we went to see a few homes. You could buy them for $20,000, $30,000. But the houses were had been emptied, but there were still the designs and paintings of small children on the wall. And when you think of it, uh, you buy a house and you think, oh, great. And then you're evicted. And who comes in? BlackRock and other institutions and buy the house from you. And it's been taken from you and your family. And the big capitalists come in and buy it all and make a fortune out of it. And now the big capitalists, as owner of all these homes, they increase the rents. I mean, all when right, you well, think of it, I also own some REITs. So if the rents go up, I also make more money. But as a uh, say a decent or Christian citizen, yeah, you shake your head. All right, well, you're you're taking this where where I'm wanting to end it, which really is the social implications, and you know, can this continue forever, or is there a breaking point? You know, per perhaps the big breaking point we hit here is not a an economic or a financial one; it's a social one, where enough dispossessed people step up and say no more. But before we get there. I do have a number of, of questions that I think people will, will want to hear the answers to before yes. we really zero in on that. Um, so um, when you were on last time, you talked a lot about the fragility of our current system and a lot of the cracks that were worrying you. We've already talked about a couple of them here, but they largely fall into three buckets, economic, financial, and social. Um, let me just hit on the economic and financial before we come back to that big social question. Yes, I'd like uh, to add... Geopolitical. <laughs> well, and, and then I've got Ukraine too, right? So, you know, we're, we're going to get there too. Um, on the economic side, um, we are seeing a slowing global economy, right? We had trillions, tens of trillions of stimulus that was pushed out around the world following the outbreak of the, the coronavirus pandemic. A lot of that is shutting off now. Um, and we are seeing GDP globally slow down and it's slowing down an awful lot in the US. Q4 was six and a half percent. Right now, Atlanta Fed has adjusted their Q1 prediction down to zero percent GDP growth. Um, we're seeing, you know, uh, the monetary side, we're switching from easing to tightening. We, you know, we've got interest rate hikes going forward. They're accelerating the taper. It's almost done in theory. Um, we've got a, a massive fiscal cliff. You know, Congress can't seem to get any more fiscal stimulus passed here. Um, we've got inflation, like we just talked about, and, and rising rates, which we talked about too. So things are really tightening on the economy here. So my question is, is 
uh, you know, are you worried that the world is sort of hurtling towards recession at this moment, um, given all the debt overhang and some of the stuff you mentioned earlier? Uh, clearly, what the government is telling you about economic expansion and so forth is uh, not entirely correct. I mean, I think uh, the typical person in the world, he has to pay now more for food, significantly more. And for you and me, my food expenditures are always constant unless taxes go up because I live from beer and cigarettes. <laughs> so it's relatively <laughs> constant. But say you have children and you are a low income recipient, you may spend, say, 30% on food. Could be. And there's a lot, of food, there's a lot of food costs that have but, gone up 20% but, uh, year but, uh, but you can see, say, if you have an income of a million US, how much can you spend on food? Maybe. 10% maximum, most people will spend not even 5%. But if you're a low income recipient uh, and you have three children, the expenditures on food and small items like what we call life necessities is a big portion of your income. So if these people are faced, uh, they live in a flat and the flat rent goes up by 20%, they'll have to move out, find something else. Or they have to tighten their belts. So whenever people tell me, oh, the economy is great, I say, well, the economy of the rich people for the last 18 months has been fantastic. From the lows in 2020 to today, wealthy people including your portfolio and my portfolio, have appreciated significantly, unless you shorted stocks, but this I didn't do. But at the same time, you know, I live in Shanghai. This is a city, has nothing to do with the global economy, but it's affected, say, by tourism and by the hotel industry and so forth. I can tell you here, 90% of the people are much less wealthy than they were two and a half years ago. There's no question about this. In and Mark's the rest of Asia would be similar. Can, can I just ask, so was this huge global stimulus in many ways just a big wealth transfer where that money all went out and it drove up the price of financial assets, which the rich people own, the poor people don't, but it increased the cost of living for everybody. So on a relative <laughs> basis, it made the wealthy much better off and the less wealthy much poorer off. Let's put it this way, knowing the IQ level of most economists, I don't think that the government uh, purposely wanted to increase the wealth of rich people. I think they gave handouts in a, kind of in a, in a way in which they thought would help people. That I believe, that I... Uh, I mean, I think governments are vicious and so forth. But in this particular instance, they thought, okay, if we don't give them money, uh, they'll starve and there'll be a revolution and you know all kinds of social unrest and so forth. 
So I think that was well intended, okay? And also to be fair, they've been printing money for 20 years, but considering the quantity of money they've been printing, there wasn't a lot of consumer price inflation until just now. But as Robert Burns remarked at the time, you know, if you have a toothpaste, the tube of toothpaste, uh, once you open it and you squeeze it and the toothpaste is out, it's very difficult to put it back in. It's practically impossible. I never succeeded in doing that. So anyway, I, I think that, but at the same time, looking at how the government has evolved in our democracies and how we, that the way we have socialists and so forth, I think that some lobbies are very powerful, like Wall Street is very powerful. I also think that uh, the drug industry is very powerful. And because of COVID, you could print money again, because don't forget, there were some liquidity problems in the summer of 2019, half a year before COVID. And so the Fed, which was at that time in the process of increasing rates somewhat and reducing its balances, they printed money again. By the end of December 2019, before COVID, the balance sheet was at the record high. So they knew there were some problems and COVID gave them the perfect excuse to print money. And now we have Ukraine. It's another excuse to print money. Now we can't tighten. <laughs> well, so, all right, let, let's pull that in here then. So um, my next question was going to be, what do you expect here from the Fed at this stage? And do you think they can be successful at all in sort of taming this inflation monster? I, I think I've already heard you say uh, you don't expect much from the Fed except more of the same. And it sounds like you expect a relatively... A uh, quick pivot from their current hawkish stance and maybe using Ukraine as the reason for that? I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what do you think? Uh, what I want to say is we have inflation at the present time that, in my view, is sticky because uh, the cost of living has gone up. And so the workers will ask for higher wages, you understand? And they will get higher wages, but it will then make the decline in the rate of inflation very difficult. And so in this situation, the Fed, as I said right at the beginning of this presentation, at the present time, given the rate of inflation, we should have a Fed fund rate at least at between 6 and 8%. And it's at zero, and they're talking about increasing it maybe one quarter or half a percent, whatever. But I want to make very clear that uh, the outcome is uncertain because... Uh, if we look at commodity prices, usually they will peak out during war times. Uh, Napoleonic wars and uh, 
the American Civil War and then 1920-21, right after the First World War. But it peaks out around the wars. Now, the thing is this, commodity prices, some of them have gone up a lot. But in real terms, if you measure them inflation adjusted, they're not that high. And so we don't know where exactly we will go. And you ask me my advice, in absence of knowing exactly where we will go, but assuming that the outcome will not be favorable. It won't be favorable in any way, whatever the outcome in Ukraine is. The Allied forces win or Putin wins. The best outcome is no, uh, is um, equal. You know, each one retreats with his demand. And, you know, you kind of, uh, I doubt Putin will ever shake hands with Biden. That I doubt. He's more likely to shake hands with some oligarch in uh, Ukraine, but not with Putin. And but, so the outcome is not likely to be very good. And I believe strongly, if I look at how the world has piled up debts, you, you see, nobody really speaks about this, but over the last 20 years, in Western Europe, in America, the government debt level has risen a lot. And the government as a percent of the economy has gone up a lot. So I can't imagine an outcome that will be very benign. I think the eventual outcome is a strong man, like a dictator. Now is the dictator right-wing or left-wing? Never mind, he will be a dictator. All right. Um, that's not the most rosy of outlooks. Um, all right. Well, look, I want to I want to even further into that. Let's just go quickly to the financial side of things for a second. You talked yes. about how asset prices have been inexorably just getting lifted higher and higher and higher over the years, Correct. largely from all of the stimulus going into the system. Um, you even use the term asset bubble. Um, lots of people have used that as well for many of the different asset classes out there. You've probably heard the term everything bubble lobbied around over yes. the past couple of years. We're now seeing a little bit of the steam coming out of it, right? The stock markets are down about 9% or so since the beginning of the year. Um, we're seeing increasing uh, shakiness in the bond market, which is really what matters here. Um, corporates, Correct. sovereigns, high yield are all looking a bit weak right now. Um, and uh, you, we've got something like, I don't know the exact percentage, but like 20% or so of U.S. corporations are zombie companies where they have to basically borrow just to meet their debt service payments. They can't <laughs> service their debt out of, out of operations, right? Um, and that's all been kept alive by you lots mean, of liquidity and really mean, cheap debt. The zombie companies are related to zombie politicians. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Zombie policy has created, and zombie yes. politicians have created zombie companies. Um, and so, you know, but that that whole system depends on uh, continued access 
to lots of cheap money, uh, you know, cheap credit Correct. to continue. So my question is, 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 do you have any concern of a serious correction this year as credit's becoming more expensive, as GDP growth, you know, economic growth is slowing? Do we, do we risk a, a material bursting of the everything bubble in the near future? Yes, I think there's a risk to that. Now, if, let's say, if the S&P drops, 10, 20%. If you're the Fed chairman, <laughs> what would you do? Say inflation is high and the S&P is down 20%. What are you, you going to do? Increase interest rates to fight inflation or print money to support the stock market? Right. And most people say this is the trap the Fed is in. So please continue. I'd love to hear your thoughts here. My sense is that uh, knowing the close relationship between the Fed and Wall Street, they will print money. All right, so your money is on printing. And you did say earlier that you expect the Fed to reverse its current hawkish uh, trajectory, perhaps even using Ukraine as an excuse for that. They will cosmetically... Uh, say we have to do something about inflation. But as I explained, if inflation is already at 6, 8, 10% per annum, and you increase the Fed fund rate from zero to a quarter percent, it's not going to do it. completely useless. Absolutely. Useless. All right. But I'd All also right. like to say one or express one view Let's assume the conflict comes to an end. I mean, we could say someone will knock off Putin at home and whatever it is, and Russia will bow to the rest of the world and say, okay, now we made a mistake, we pay and this and that. We hand over all our oil assets to the US because the US is the nice country in the world that looks after everybody and never invaded another country and caused any civilian deaths. So uh, in that situation, uh, maybe what would happen is that uh, there would be a liquidity crisis initially, but afterwards they're going to print money. I'm telling you, it's very difficult to see any other scenario then a further increase in the purchases of assets by central banks in Europe and the US and in England and in Japan. And in that situation, and the other points of view, I would think that you want to own some assets, you know, that the multiplication of these assets is not so easy. So let's say you own a piece of real estate, but not necessarily where it's already very high. You can buy in the countryside probably a property that is not terribly expensive. In Italy, in Spain, in Portugal, France, and so forth, the countryside real estate is cheap. The same in Asia. Or you own gold or silver, platinum, and so forth. That cannot be multiplied. Or some people would say, well, you have to own some bitcoins. 
I understand all the merits and the dangers of owning each. But I'd like to introduce something that I think is very important, what the crisis in Ukraine has taught you and me. Let's say you are a Russian and you are, say, a plastic surgeon, and you're very famous and you made a lot of money out of your practice as a plastic surgeon. You have nothing at all to do with politics. And you had an account in a Swiss bank or British bank and so forth. And now it's frozen. You sit, you were on a business trip to treat a patient in London or in Paris or in New York. You go and want to pay the hotel bill with your credit card. You can't, you understand, this is a dimension that people have to think about. And it can it happen now to the Russians, or it can happen to anyone. Can happen to anyone. And so I think the lesson from this Ukraine crisis is you, you have to diversify your assets and not diversify by owning a portfolio at say Merrill Lynch in the United States and diversify by buying some stocks in Argentina and some stocks in Brazil and some stocks in Australia and some stocks in Thailand, some stocks in China, some stocks in Eastern Europe or not. You have to have the custody of your account in different uh, jur jurisdictions, in different sovereignties and not all in the Anglo-Saxon Axis. So, in other words, <coughs> you want to truly diversify. You better have some assets maybe in Dubai and some in Singapore and some maybe in China and some maybe in Moscow. Who knows? I'm just saying you have to be aware of that. That what you have in the US as a even as an American may not always guarantee your prosperity because it can be taken away. I think it's a super, super important point. Um, it dovetails off of um, Jim Rickards, who I interviewed a little while ago, who talked about the importance of diversification. And, and his emphasis was more on the, a lot of people own a lot of different types of stocks and a lot of different type of sectors. And he says, yeah, but they're all still stocks, right? <laughs> Your exposure to the stock market in general is still one with all those assets. So you want to own right. different types of assets. And you, you've mentioned That's a few, you know, real estate, gold, et cetera, ones that are outside of the, the, the financial system. Um, but you're also saying, look, given what Ukraine, you know, or, or the Russian sanctions are, are telling us in real time is, um, a lot of wisdom in owning uh, your, your your assets in different uh, lo localities uh, under different forms of governance so that if one right. clamps down, you can still access uh, assets in another. Um, all right. So uh, I, 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 I just want to ask you this because you mentioned even Russia as a potential place. Um, we've had guests on this program in the past before what just happened with Ukraine talk about, hey, you might even want to own some of these Russian assets. And yes, there's country risk there, but you're sort of diversifying your country risk. Well, country risk around Russia came into the forefront in a big way this past week. And the Russian stock market's down like over 90% now, right? 
but right. you've got some amazing, you've, you've got some world-class commodity producers there that are trading for cents on the dollar versus where they were a week ago. Like Luke Oil is right. less than 90, per, it's more than 90% cheaper today than it was a week ago, right? Um, I know that everyone's going to have their own ethical line as to whether they feel they want to invest in a Russian company or not. But I'm curious, do you think that, that you know, this is sort of one of those blood in the streets moments where you can pick up some amazing values on the cheap in those Russian companies? Or are they toxic because there's too much risk of them getting nationalized or going bankrupt because of the sanctions or whatnot? I think it's too early to tell. but the lesson that I would learn from that is, you know, a lot of people always say, oh, we are in a bubble. Well, here you have an example where some assets are no longer in a bubble. That I can tell you. They were actually, before the collapse, not in a bubble. And now, as you say, uh, if you would just look at the economics of the business, they are giving away these companies giving away but again you understand if you and i go in and buy them it's a different story than if glencore goes in and buys them or say i was thinking the chinese they want energy they need energy they need resources they could go to the chinese to the russian and say BP wants to sell. We take that stake. Total wants to sell. They haven't declared that they want to sell, but say, just in case, we will buy that stake. They could buy now Russian assets on the cheap. But the Russian may not want to sell them because uh, Putin may say, okay, our assets are so cheap. I take them over, you know, as the government. I will buy them up. Now, can they force foreigners to sell? Who knows? But in a war, where are the laws? This is a very difficult situation to tell. I already thought the Russian fund was very cheap a week ago. Now it's been cut again in half. Yeah, every day it goes down 30%. It's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, sure. But I want to remind all viewers, this is a very important event. This is, you know, when people talk about, oh, I have $100 million. Okay, $100 million, it's in stocks. In the case of Russians today, that $100 million is worth $10 million, maximum. Maximum. Plus, they borrowed money because they were rich, so they thought, okay, we've gained the market and so forth. It's a horror story, a horror story. And i just like to say this, this has an impact on the liquidity in the world, this collapse in Russian assets. Number two, it has an indirect impact because if the Russian assets collapse, the bonds in Russia also collapsed, okay? So you, I'm say the manager of a bond fund, then I don't buy Russian bonds, but I may think, well, it could happen elsewhere. 
and then the spreads widen. So the interest rates on emerging market debts go up without anything, without the Fed tightening or anything. Right, and that's, so that's already happening. I'm telling you, this is a very difficult situation. I was lucky, and I tell you, the only reason so far this year I haven't lost any money is that I hold about 20, 25% of my money in uh, gold. And I have a very large exposure to US dollars. But you understand, if you're in Europe, the major exposure is in euros. The major exposure may be in Swiss francs and so forth. So all these foreign currencies have been weak against the US dollar. But this year, sometimes the US dollar will turn around and weaken. We just don't know when and how much. But this Russian experience, I warned about this already five months ago. The volatility will increase. Volatility means I look at the stock market tonight or yesterday, or many stocks are up in a day, four, five percent. Many stocks tomorrow are down four, five percent. Five percent move on your portfolio. You have a hundred million dollars. It's a five million dollar swing in one day. Well, Mark, I want to just tug on this a little bit further because I totally agree. And, and you know, this may be a big inflection point that we're seeing here in in, in the current it's trajectory. Um, and and we are to your point about you know people demanding higher rates now on on bonds from all different places just because they're realizing the world's maybe a little bit more of a risky place than we were pricing and. We're already beginning to see that. I just launched a video yesterday with Gordon Long where he was looking at credit default swaps. The prices of those have gone up dramatically across almost every country that you can think of. So he also mentioned that um, you know these sanctions cutting Russia out of SWIFT and all that type of stuff, that Russia was lending hundreds of billions of dollars into the overnight market where banks all around the world were taking those short-term loans, those overnight loans, and all of a sudden, they've got to find other sources to get that money from, and not all of them are going to be able to find, uh, you know, replacements super quickly. So it's going to have this ripple effect in the system. And again, it might be the right thing to do ethically to shut Russia off right now, but it's going to create unintended cascading effects throughout the system that we don't really know yet what's going to happen. So how, how material a risk is this? Uh, precisely how much of a risk it is, I don't know. But for sure, it will have an impact. Uh, and as I said, the financial system nowadays is very fragile. And if people are no longer so confident, it, it has an impact on valuations. You know, this is the point. I think uh, Jeremy Grantham will prove to be correct that over the next 10 years, <clears throat> if you don't lose any money, you are actually doing quite well. Yeah, I've heard the term, you should plan on losing money in the coming environment. Your strategy is just to try to lose less than everybody else does and be a relative winner. Correct. But equally, I can tell you, if the Fed 
says, okay, we have a really difficult situation. We have war and uh, liquidity problems and so forth. We need a huge package stimulus. The Republicans and the Democrats, the only disagreement is how to spend the money. Right. How much and they, how to spend it. Yeah. How, much, how much is irrelevant, but how to share, you know, 50-50% or 80% to the Republicans and 20% to Democrats or 80% to Democrats and 20 and so forth. But basically they will continue to spend because that's where they make their money. Right. All right. So we've got this continued business as usual of just more money printing and probably more inflation as we look forward down the road through your crystal ball here. In terms of assets, you know, most of our viewers watching this are just trying to say, okay, if that's what the future is going to be like, how do I not become roadkill in this process? So you've, you've talked about you know, the importance of diversification. You talked about owning assets like real estate, precious metals, be some cryptos. Correct me if that part's wrong. Um, but I want to talk to you about commodities for a moment because they have done very well. And obviously you would expect them to do well as inflation rises. Um, and uh, I, I, I've read a recent piece that you said that you expect that we are, uh, you mentioned earlier that they're still, even though they've raised in price a fair amount, they're still relatively undervalued versus other financial assets. And I've, I've recently seen you say that you expect uh, that we may be entering a new commodity super cycle. Is that still the case? I'd say we... Our interview with Mark continues over in part two, which will be released tomorrow as soon as we're through editing it. To be notified when it comes out, subscribe to this channel if you haven't already by clicking on the subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. And be sure to click the like button too while you're at it. And if the massive imbalances and instabilities Mark highlighted in this interview have you feeling a little vulnerable about the prospects for your wealth, then consider scheduling a free, no-strings-attached portfolio review by a financial advisor who can help manage your portfolio, keeping in mind the trends and risks that Mark has highlighted here. Just go to Wealthion.com and we'll help set one up for you. Okay. I'll see you next in part two of our video interview with Dr. Mark Faber.